Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. It's so interesting to me how humans are so scared of anything or anyone they perceive as different especially when you consider the fact that every human is different. And when we accept that human diversity is something to be embraced rather than to be shunned, we are all the better off for it. That's why I'm excited to have Elizabeth Wicklander join this episode of Autism Stories to discuss embracing her autistic identity. Elizabeth also talks with us about performing in the London Orchestra and being the featured cellist on the Reason I Jump soundtrack. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I wanted to um, start this off and, and just learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? It's starting to be quite a long, long story back now. I mean, it's, it's easy to want to go back to the very very first start when I was just a young child and being autistic and not knowing about it but still being very impacted by the fact that I was but when it comes to the fantastic community that we have today obviously all the people that make up that community were still around me at that point but we hadn't yet connected through those personal life experiences and, and, and characteristics that are shared today so this whole journey that led up to that point of realizing that there was a community out there and for that community to actually take shape and for you to realize that you were part of this fantastically diverse and, and colorful and skilled community. It was quite a journey and I lived quite in ignorance about my difference until I was 26. Up until then, obviously, I was very aware of the fact that I was different although I couldn't pinpoint out exactly how or, or why. But uh, it all sort of come... So I had just moved abroad in 2005 to pursue my studies. And at that point, my life had started to become increasingly complicated because at that point, moving abroad and suddenly being in an environment in a music conservatory and started to work and be exposed to a lot of people in orchestras and so on, obviously, my difference was more exposed and more consequences of my difference started to hit me in life at that point. And also in my 20s, all the, the difficult situations that you had encountered as a child that you hadn't been able to discuss or even express or talk about or understand, they had also started to weigh a lot on me at that point. So in my early 20s, I started to reach a mental health crisis, which was starting to get quite serious from everything weighing down on me and thankfully at that point information about my mysterious difference started to come out and someone who was working with autistic people had spotted my father as a typical Asperger profile 
And this was back in 2005, and I had never heard that terminology before, as many of us had not. And I read everything that I could find about it, which must, it wasn't much at the time, and a lot of the information also had elements of severe generalizations and misinformation. But despite of all the missing puzzle pieces there, my gut told me that this information had huge relevance to my family. And it would turn out that I was right, but it still took many years of battling ignorance and dismissal before I got where I am today. Although I'm very much like my father, I didn't make the connection myself that I too was on the autism spectrum until a couple of years later. Because back then there were no, uh, no information about female autism per se or female traits lists. Today, thankfully, these studies are finally taking off and books are written and published by autistic females and famous successful women are coming out as autistic. But back in the day when I suspected being on the autism spectrum, there was none of this. And I only had to put together sporadic clues found in the consequences of my interaction with others. And my partner had just undergone a brain surgery at the time and was in a very vulnerable state. He wasn't able to compensate for or have patience with any of my quirks. So the traits that I possessed that were seemingly to him unusual and that caused friction between us, they were suddenly in that situation just brutally listed to me, which was confusing and shocking. But I was doing the washing up one night and I was contemplating all that had been said to me. And suddenly I just saw the connection between these traits because of the previous encounter with, in regards to my father. So I just suddenly just left everything I was doing and I went to investigate further. And thankfully at that point, only a few years later, books about being in a relationship with an autistic partner, almost always portrayed by a man, had been published. And the experience there described and mirrored my experiences and my experiences in relationships down to the very last detail all throughout the books. And that is how I realized that I was autistic. But so many women, they have their struggles dismissed and unrecognized because of the blunt diagnostic criteria, where unfortunately then and still to this day are often tailor-made for the cisgender, white, middle-aged male. So I had to fight hard for my recognition as an autistic female and was met with a lot of distrust from everywhere around me and at my GP, where I was turned away twice. Being absolutely convinced that this was what was going on because nothing, no books could just be so pinpointly detailed, uh, mirroring your experience the way they were. There was just, logically, there was just, I was completely convinced that this was the matter. So in order to get them to listen to me, I collected all of the, all of the material that I had read and I had made underlinings everywhere in the books. I collected a huge folder of articles I printed and then they too had highlighting everywhere throughout. And I brought them on my third attempt to my GP and on his desk, there was a sad little printout of Asperger's syndrome from the Wikipedia. <laughs> and it was at that point only half a, half a page long. And next to this, I just dumped this backpack of books and papers. And I said to him, look, I have read all of this. I relate, I relate to all of this and I need to have an autism assessment now. And this time it worked. So I was, Assess. I was being given a referral, but back then, just as it is unfortunately today now, there was a long time to wait, and I was told it was going to be at least eight months until I would be referred to anyone at the earliest. And uh, because my life was in a serious crisis at the moment, 
eight months wasn't going to cut it. It wasn't going to do it for me. Um, so instead, I was referred to a private practice and an Asperger's expert who worked with couples where one partner was autistic. And by him, almost instantly, I was identified as autistic with the two labels Asperger's syndrome and uh, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. So this was in 2008, and I think these both these labels are both outdated today, but uh, still unofficially in use. But it would still take until 2015 before I disclosed this publicly and truly discovered my community. But uh, yeah, that's a whole other story that takes us somewhere else. But in 2015, I was ready to to embrace myself, just who I was. That is where I started to open up about who I was, and through that a lot of people connected back to me who could uh, relate to my experiences. And that's when I started to <laughs> discover that this community, that first of all, that I had a community and that they were actually all around me disguised, you know, just hidden in plain sight all around me in my immediate sphere. But I was also being contacted by people from all over the globe because I started quite early on to talk in media about this and people found me on the internet and reached out. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how how the story went. Hmm. Now you were you were talking about how you had a mental health crisis in your in your twenties, and this was before you realized that you were autistic. Hmm. Lo- looking back on it, if you knew you were autistic then, like how do you see that affecting your mental health back then? It would have been absolutely completely a game changer all through and through. Because now I realized that I was disabled by circumstances rather than a product of nature. You know, if you Google Asperger's syndrome or PDD NOS uh, now, what you are being bombarded with is very <laughs> negative and off-putting terminology about you. And this is what I had shoved down my throat. And what else could you think? But you were an abnormal and deficient human being. So. I tried to correct myself in order to, <laughs> um, well, be what was expected of me, the neurotypical expectations, thinking that that was the right way to be. And obviously, well, it was very treacherous because at first, well, I was very successful at doing this because I had the tools. I realized what my difference was. I can compare my difference to others and I could find strategies on how to bridge that difference. The only problem with doing that was that I burnt myself out completely and I experienced something called autistic burnout, which I didn't know what it was then. The health professionals didn't know what that was then. And even worse, my surrounding didn't know what was happening to me and I was ostracized by them. So I actually, thinking that I had found success for myself, I created a mental health crisis, which was the worst one that I've actually ever had in my entire life by trying to be something that I was not in going against my natural calibration, thinking that was the road to acceptance and success. Now I understand that my main issue all the time has been ignorance, both from myself and my surrounding, and my real medicine, which is truly helping me to flourish as a human being, is to educate my environment about these cognitive differences and to accept and embrace them as a natural part of human diversity and celebrate them. Now, for almost a decade now, you have been a cellist for the London Orchestra. What is it about the cello that made you want to continue to play this instrument and eventually lead to a career? 
I was always exposed to music from the moment I was born, actually. <laughs> My father played on a cassette tape in the delivery room, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 5, when I was 10 minutes old. But my parents are both musicians, and as a child, my father would sometimes perform with a cellist called Guido Vecchi, who was the former cello soloist of the Gothenburg Symphony Orchestra. And once when Guido was leaving our house, he found me outside on the steps pretending to play cello with two sticks and said to my parents that she should play the cello. <laughs> my parents had actually put me in a queue to play the violin, but this made them change their minds and Guido arranged for me to start playing the cello according to something which is called the Suzuki method when I was three years old. So since then, I have just been playing and music has always been a natural part of my upbringing. I was inspired by my parents and from playing with my father and I was constantly surrounded by other musicians and concerts and music making. I did have other interests too and uh, I remember I had a period when I was just about to make a choice of what to study in school and I was quite keen on going for nature science but in the end music always won and I started the music gymnasium and I think my path at that point of going to the music conservatory study abroad and pursue a career was pretty clear and laid out for me at that point. I loved it and it was an environment which I knew and I was familiar with despite it often being also challenging with, with pressure and exposure and stage fright but I've always been a very stubborn person and when I just decide that I want to know something or do something, I just find a way to try to do it. Unfortunately, at that point, there was also another aspect to this sort of determination and fighting spirit that I've always had. Back then, having experienced a lot of bullying and exclusion in my upbringing and throughout elementary school and such, I didn't always feel accepted for who I was but because I was always academically quite successful and good at playing the cello, I connected a lot of those skills with my self-worth and found that the only way I was going to gain acceptance from my surrounding was if I was really good at something. So I put an immense, a lot of pressure on myself with this and not allowing myself to fail at anything because um, there was a lot of stake <laughs> for me when it came to success. Thankfully, uh, nowadays, I have been able to let go of that because I've found my self-worth already in myself and who I am and not because of uh, only what I achieve. So, but that's, uh, that was a very much uh, driving forces when I was young in terms of pursuing a musical career, not just because I loved music, because it was also really important for me to succeed at what, what I was doing. You mentioned that in 2015 you disclosed publicly that you're autistic and that was mm -hmm. a few years after you began with the Lon London Orchestra. How did that affect your, your work um, with the London Orchestra? Let's just say trying to get by as an autistic individual when hardly anyone knows that you are autistic, it makes interpersonal relationships very difficult. Although my disclosure was a culmination of years of development, the orchestra environment was a powerful catalyst to that disclosure it became crystal clear to me that masking was not a concept that was going to work in the long run, especially not in a socially tight and complex environment such as an orchestra, which toured all the time and with everyone living in each other's pockets. Well, I experienced a lot of distressful and psychologically challenging situations at my workplace, which at some point for me reached critical levels. And I was just trying too hard to be neurotypical when I wasn't. And 
I think it created a lot of confusion. I realized that masking is a really oppressive way of living, that it's a harmful coping mechanism that brings people to their knees in burnouts and it, it robs you of your identity, it erodes your mental health, it fuels depression and intense anxiety. And also having learned neurotypical skills, it didn't make me less autistic. It just made me very good at speaking a foreign language. It didn't teach other people anything about who I was, what I needed, uh, tolerance or appreciations of the skills that I already possessed. Nor did it build genuine relationships. And that was sort of like the pinpoint in all of this. And I realized that the only way there was going to be any chance of success in my life with, you know, anything social, it was a two-way approach where I had to tell everyone I was autistic and live by showing what that meant. It was either that or just throw, throw in the towel and give up on my life, basically. So from the 2nd of April in 2015, I have advocated publicly. And at my workplace, I think a lot of answers were revealed, although many didn't yet know exactly what me being autistic meant in practice. There was mistrust still lingering, but that diminished and soon went completely quiet as support rose. And I started to appear in high profile media situations and, and make a name for myself. Uh, now, when I'm an internationally appreciated advocate, I have gained respect and friendships everywhere in my work environment. And I'm, I don't think it's just because of my personal success, I would give my colleagues more benefit than that. But I think genuinely that it is because both I am and autism is better understood. That's what I think. I still encounter difficult situations, but nowadays they are not so common and they almost always arise from ignorance rather than malintent. So I am close to many of my colleagues and I have managers who are very supportive. So conclusively, the major difference has been social. But there are still goals to strive for everywhere in working environments in general regarding DEI initiatives and the need to include neurodiversity, the neurodiversity paradigm in those to make neurodivergent individuals not just feel accepted for who they are, but also feel that they truly belong and experience a psychological safety at work and to have their talents and skills maximized. I think these are areas where society in general can find a lot of growth. I think a big challenge with social difference is, uh, you know, is the spoken word, or sometimes people just don't have the ability to use uh, spoken language. So I'm becoming much more interested in other ways to communicate our needs, our wants, and our feelings. So I'm wondering, how do you look at maybe the cello and uh, the music that you perform in terms of communicating? I'm so privileged to actually be able to work with this art form, which um, has incredible properties when it comes to communication and outlet and connection and feelings. Playing music has always been a channel to get your emotions out and, you know, hopefully <laughs> connect with others through the sounds that you make and what you put into that sound, uh, how you color it with your soul. Um, Indeed, it is so true that spoken language create a lot of miscommunication easily and that music is a new universal communication tool with enormous bridge building potential. One of the things that still brings me in awe when working in an orchestra is how communication function on such an intricate and acute micro level between so many sometimes very different individuals. It still feels like a magic that never loses its charm and 
brings you to heightened sensory and cognitive dimensions in your interaction with others. Music truly increases quality of life and builds connection, conveys feelings, bridges differences. It's, it fosters patience and discipline whilst gifting our lives with beauty and making our hearts softer. It's really amazing how you can sit down with a person you know, who is unable to speak or who can't speak your language or you think you have absolutely nothing in common and then you can sit and make, make sounds together and communicate together through music and have a really intimate interaction with that person and it's a really bonding experience. I don't generally have the communication issues I do with spoken language across neurological barriers when using the language of music with people. But I think I still do need to say that it has been still imperative for me to find a way to improve spoken language uh, in communication and nonverbal communication outside music making also. Because in my profession, I, I need to be able to coexist with fellow musicians and rehearsing and working with them. And this often happens also through conventional verbal interaction. In 2020, a wonderful film came out called The Reason I Jump, which explored the experiences of non-speaking autistic people around the world. You were the featured cellist on that film's soundtrack, and the composer of the film's soundtrack said that your contribution had great sensitivity and perception, particularly in the film's forest sequence, which, if I remember correctly, was near the end of the film. What went into your contribution that uh, made it so memorable? Oh, first, I just have to say that Nainita Desai is a woman I highly admire, both as a person and a composer. It was such an honor to work with her. And that she expressed herself that way about my contribution is a true and humbling honor. I'm sure she would probably have a much better answer to this question than I have, because I see my contribution through a very self-critical, magnifying lens. But I think what might have contributed maybe is my will to live up to expectations and my, my sincere desire to do music and art justice, even though I feel I can never attain that, but I always strive for it. So I always try to do my best and give all that I've got, being the perfectionism that I am. Also, I had read the book, The Reason I Jump, a few years before the film was made, and I felt a really strong connection and empathy towards what was written in that book. And I think you always get a very special contribution when you turn to original sources and authentic representation. So I'm convinced that the fact that I am autistic played an important role in that equation too. Well, lastly, I have to say also that another important factor is that Nainita's music, it does touch your inner core. Even if I would have had no idea what the film was about, her music is just so inspiring and it allows you to dig out the deepest and most sincere emotions that you have. And I think that the forest scene was just precisely such a moment. Now, you don't just play the cello, you're a cello teacher as well. For autistic and neurodivergent people that may want to learn to play the cello or are currently taking lessons, what do you think are maybe some important things for their teacher to take into account when uh, teaching them? Well, I think it is crucial to know about the many different expressions of neurodivergencies. I think you just have to embrace, you know, dig into that whole topic and learn as much as you can about it and never to underestimate how powerful it can be when you find the way of teaching that will work for a particular student. 
for me, it has been very helpful to have been aware of, for example, how influential a sensory environment can be, or that some have very visual minds, they have monotropic minds, or what the distinguished uh, author and advocate Samantha Kraft calls bottom-up thinkers, meaning taking in details before concept. Uh, I'm one of those, and my mind isn't great with abstract things. It needs a lot of detail to create a picture for me to see. But when I see that picture, it is crystal clear and in high resolution with a lot of details in place. So I've played the cello since I was three, but I didn't become, what you would say, a successful cellist until my mid-twenties. I struggled in my development compared to other students who seemed for me to just overcome technical obstacles, almost like magic. But when I met a special cello teacher later on when studying for my master's of music in the Netherlands, things changed. This man, he wasn't very popular because he was strict, he was blunt, he was meticulously detailed and with an almost, you would say almost a mechanical approach to cello technique. So many students found this off-putting, but I was intrigued because this man actually gave me something that I could finally visualize. And when I could see it, all the information suddenly locked in. And within a year, my cello playing skyrocketed and I started getting highest marks and I started winning auditions. So I think it's important never to dismiss how seemingly insignificant adjustments can have on a crucial impact to neurodivergent students. I have, for example, always been very vulnerable to not being allowed to take notes at school because writing helps me process speech and to systemize information in a way that my mind can absorb. Now, using more senses than one often results in better retention for most people, but for some, it can be crucial to learning anything at all. So I always did really well in academia, provided I was allowed to scribble. If not, I struggled to pass subjects. But when I was allowed to access information my way, I could go down months of theory in a matter of days and still be one of the highest scoring uh, students in the institution. So for me, a trivial thing like a pen and paper always made the difference between effortless excellence or struggle for mediocre results. So I think it's important to not just have a method or apply a strategy, but be very flexible in the way you teach to match the student's natural calibration and learning style. You were talking earlier about how music can be so, you know, there's so many benefits that you can get from music. And I think one of the um, important ones is that you can develop communities. So I'm wondering, how do you think music has helped you develop community in your life? I can definitely say that without music, I would have been much lonelier than I was. Music it does help you to connect with people and you can share very powerful and almost, like I said before, intimate experiences with people that you hardly even know. And as a child, I did feel lonely and excluded in general, but I have very fond memories actually from the moments when I did take part in music ensembles, classes and orchestras, which thankfully I did on a regular basis. And I think that really brightened up my childhood, which in many other aspects could have otherwise been seen as quite gloomy and difficult. So it made me part of things when playing, even if I didn't always fit in in the situations around the playing. But I still remember vividly music projects in school, for example, that you worked for weeks towards, all striving and working towards that common goal, no matter how different you were or no matter how well or badly you got along with certain people in that group. 
it just really created a bonding between us that was strong and special. By doing this, I also met a lot of people with similar interests, which was great too, because many of my other interests when growing up were quite odd and quite geeky. So now actually in the last last couple of years, I've, uh, after having been abroad for 16 years and returned to Sweden, my native Sweden, I've reconnected with some of the people I got to learn to know through music uh, when I was young. And to my surprise, the bond is still very strong, despite a, a, 20, a good 20-year 20 uh, year gap. So uh, though the music world challenged me a lot as an adult and mercilessly put my difference in a spotlight, I can today appreciate the transformation that it partly instigated. So going from grappling with the task of understanding who I was to eventually becoming formally identified as autistic, embracing myself as disordered and trying to correct myself, and then finally rejecting this approach and coming out, embracing my authenticity and reclaiming my dignity without having to mimic neurotypical behavior. It has all been partially catapulted by the socially challenging circumstances of working in big orchestras. But today I can say that it does give me great pleasure to be part of a band such as the London Philharmonic Orchestra and to have found true purpose and true friends there. But I still think I want to underscore the importance of understanding who I am and also for my musicianship and for the journey of understanding how I learned to play the cello so that I could become a cellist. It has furthermore been important also for the musician that I am for to know how I work and how I relate to and communicate with other musicians. So for me, self-exploration as an autistic individual was what truly helped me build a community on a solid foundation, both within and outside the music world. I think music itself, although as powerful as it is, I couldn't do it alone, but it has undoubtedly played a very important part in that pursuit and in that goal. Now, I get the honor of talking to autistic people from around the world like yourself. And you were just mentioning how you had have you returned to Sweden. So I was wondering, what is it, what do you see the autistic experience like in Sweden? Where is the education at? And where do you see like where things need gaps in support, um, you know, particularly for adults? Oh, I guess my answer is the same as everywhere <laughs> that we need improvements everywhere. You can pick any topic off the shelf <laughs> and there's lots of work to do. Now, having spent all this time in the UK, I have to say that the UK has come a real long way with this. I mean, the, the UK even had one of the first autism-specific legislations through the Autism Act of 2009. There are also really big organizations, a lot of people and advocates on the front lines, you know, with the neurodiversity paradigm as their guiding star, which I think is absolutely brilliant, which I have not really quite felt the same way here in Sweden. I feel like we're a little bit behind maybe with those sort of, maybe not with the information about autism per se, but maybe in the whole attitudinal approach towards these differences. I feel that we're using more medical language in Sweden then, which has been much more challenged in the UK, where autistic people themselves have proclaimed that we do not want to refer ourselves as, as this or that, or we prefer to call ourselves autistic, rather than saying we have autism, etc. So, yes, I think in Sweden, if we could also find that mind shift about cognitive differences, because I think, the thing is, I think that the initial 
sort of feel and attitude towards it, it is. I think it is appreciative in many ways in Sweden, but the language doesn't really reflect that yet. And I think that, that language does very much reflect our attitudes towards something. So I think maybe without meaning it, we're a little bit setting us back here by not trying to change to use more appreciative language around these things so that we can make it easier for people to disclose and be proud of who they are and also to break the stigma about these things. Now, beyond music, you're, you've done some really important advocacy work for the autistic and neurodivergent community over the years. Uh, you had a TED Talk and are a cultural ambassador for the National Autistic Society in the UK. What are some of the key messages you try to get across um, in your advocacy work? Uh, oh, it's hard to pick which ones to mention here, but um, <laughs> I. Well, let's just start and see where we go. I first of all believe that the new understandings that neurodiversity offers are bursting with possibility for us. That is going to play a crucial part in our pursuit of societal goals, minimizing injustices, reaching greater inclusion and extracting maximum benefit out of human talent. And like I just said about Sweden there, I think that language does reflect our attitudes towards something and that we need to avoid terminology from the medical model <laughs> whenever you can, to give us a more positive and appreciative language around cognitive differences, which would help encourage disclosure. And I believe that disclosure is a key ingredient to normalize these differences and removing the stigmas around them. I also believe that an important part in accelerating the mind shift we need is to make original sources and neurodivergent advocates the primary source of information, because through their testimonies, we can truly change attitudes raise tolerance barriers and challenge bias. People who speak about us from an outside perspective can of course bring valuable input too and should not be dismissed, but it should never replace the authentic autistic testimony. And I want the neurodiversity paradigm to be our guiding star, suggesting that neurodivergencies are a natural and valuable form of human diversity, just as we can differ in ethnicity, gender identity, culture, or, or sexual orientation, whatever. This doesn't have to undermine impairments or real struggles for people who do live under challenging circumstances, because obviously they exist. And it is not about lifting a disability label from the autistic community, because there are certainly needs which must be better addressed, much, be, uh, much better understood, and certainly better accommodated for. What I think it's rather about including autistic people who are disadvantaged by circumstances rather than how they are born to the big picture. So what I'm talking about is the medical and the social models of disability, which are, I believe, both applicable and relevant to the autistic community. But they are like two different toolboxes and, and tools. They work best for the task they are designed for. The medical model, which is a deficit-oriented model, is what now dominates our views and language around autism. But it does indeed have a, a really important purpose in offering medical intervention on an objective basis, which is crucial for some to have a full quality of life. But for many of us, for, for me, for example, the fundamental problem isn't medical. And if you use a hammer on a screw, you won't get the desired result and you risk damaging the screw. And I think that this is what having the medical model as default is doing to people like myself. We confuse individuals who need medical intervention to increase quality of life with people who already reach that quality without intervention through acceptance. So 
I see so many times and experienced it myself that healthy autistics are, are treated as if they're disordered then becoming ill from being forced to assimilate to something they're not calibrated for, sometimes to the point of, of self-destruction, when having our issues attributed to the fact that we are autistic. So many of our issues are not because we're autistic, but because we're an oppressed and underrepresented group of people with no or adequate services to help us. So I think by catering for cognitive diversity so that everyone gains acceptance, understanding and a more equal shot at things in life, we could eradicate a huge chunk of the injustices and mental health issues that we find in the autistic community. And we need to broaden the framework when talking about cognitive differences and make the social model of disability default, the one which actually correlates with the neurodiversity paradigm. So everyone will benefit from a more accommodating society. And for those whose needs still aren't sufficiently met by this, a medical approach is more likely to, in those cases, successfully serve its true purpose and be helpful rather than detrimental. So conclusively, I think people don't have to become experts on neurodivergent profiles, but we do need a shift in attitude that challenges bias and raise tolerance, tolerance barriers to different thinking and communication styles. And it's important that this generation, neurodivergent people and their neurotypical allies support each other and demand change and challenge harmful stereotypes to hold the door open for the next generation of unique minds because daunting challenges that humanity is now facing, we're going to need those people and their contributions and innovative thinking more than ever. So we must lift invisible barriers in social construct and use strength-based approaches to prevent their important contributions to get lost in conformity. Well, Elizabeth, I really appreciate your time today and for your very thoughtful answers to my questions. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Elizabeth for the conversation. To learn more about Elizabeth, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. I always love when we have people like Elizabeth here on Autism Stories that talk about how important it was to accept and embrace their autistic identity, and when they did, life only got better for them. That's something... We support so many of our clients with at Autism Personal Coach. If you're interested in embracing your autistic identity and applying this knowledge to your life, you can book a free call with me today to learn how Autism Personal Coach can help guide you in this area. A link for the free call can be found in the podcast description of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss a conference for autistic adults. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.